I guess we've got a chance to ask questions at the end of this, and I'll say this about any of my talks. I don't like them to be just a monologue, so please, if there's things you'd like me to talk about or to go into further, please say. <laughs> uh, it's a plea that I always make at the beginning, of course, is talk to me, just for the brief period in the evening, uh, because I'd rather wait you go away hearing the things that you want particularly to hear, because I'm sure if there's one or two of you within the group who wants to hear about something in a little bit more detail, then I'm sure there are others as well. So I will you know, be expecting you to engage me in, in dialogue over the few uh, over this week. Now the technique, the tradition which we're going to be practicing over this period is derived primarily from the Tibetan tradition or certainly that's where it's practiced these days. The technique which some of you may have heard of, might have even studied, is something called Mahamudra, which I'll go into what that actually means a little bit later on. What, and I just want to say a few words about the background and I'll talk about the practicalities and we'll start at the beginning in many ways. What I want to say about this technique is it's really kind of response within the growth of Buddhist traditions in India. Now, scholars, both within Buddhism and outside of Buddhism, have looked at a common thread that appears to run through what's known as Chan Buddhism, Zen Buddhism, and Mahamudra and Dzogchen practices, which is another Tibetan practice. And there seems to be a commonality about it. And it seems to be a reaction against a lot of the dry scholasticism that was found in Buddhism in India itself during the period up to the demise of Buddhism around about the 12th century. What the practitioners of, these, of this particular technique, this particular form of practice were doing was they were rebelling against this overly intellectual, scholarly tradition that was operative. Now, Buddhism, as you probably know, has not just one text like the theistic religions, but many, 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 hundreds and thousands of them, all generated mostly by scholars, um, particularly during the classical medieval period in India. There is massive amounts of texts and commentaries and commentaries on commentaries and sub-commentaries on the commentaries, so there's an enormous amount of material being generated. But there were those people who rebelled against that and said, look, I don't want any part of this. In fact, they kind of made fun of a lot of the scholarly monks. And this still goes on, even in Tibetan traditions to this day. Um, there's a big distinction between scholarly monks and meditators. Within Theravada Buddhism, you find this between urban monks and monks who live in forest hermitages. So there's still a big distinction in Buddhism between those hands-on meditators who take themselves off into forests, into retreat situations, and do lots and lots of meditation practice, and those who study. That might not preclude them from doing meditation, but they do an awful lot of study as well. So the origins of Mahamudra are to be found in this rebellion against this overtly scholarly tradition that you find in Buddhism. Now, Buddhism entered Tibet in the 7th century. It probably actually, that's the official history that the Tibetans tell us. 
It probably started around Tibet a lot earlier than that. The dissemination at least took a couple of hundred years. Now one of the traditions that moved in at that period was the Mahamudra tradition. So you find a number of Tibetan lineages. Now we talk about lineages in Tibetan Buddhism which share a common origin. Now, I'm not sure whether you're aware, but just for those who are not, there are four major traditions of Tibetan Buddhism. Three of those share one lineage in relationship to the teachings of Mahamudra. These are the Gelugpa tradition, the Sakya tradition, and the Kagyu tradition. The Gelugpa is the latest. It's the one, the sect that the Dalai Lama belongs to. The particular grouping that he belongs to is not the head of his own school, by the way. Buddhism. Many people get that wrong. He's actually just a monk within that school. They all share this one lineage, which they trace back to India, and trace back to the great practitioners within India. Now, in India itself, there's a great history of gurus, teachers, transmission. That is what got passed through into Tibet. That was continued and it was passed on from teacher to disciple who then became teachers and then passed it on to their disciples. What we have is a tremendous oral tradition. So it's not to be found written in textbooks, most of it. All that's worth knowing comes from the oral tradition. In preparation for doing this retreat, I translated a small text, which is the basis of what we're going to do. And toward the end of the retreat, I'll give you a copy of it. And it's a very small text. But in a sense, without having done the retreat, the text won't make much sense until you've actually done the retreat and heard what's been said and practiced some of the techniques which are engaged. Mahamudra, the very term, is a Sanskrit term. It means the great seal. doesn't tell you much, does it? <laughs> One can think of this in a way a bit like, you know, all reality is stamped with something. And this is what the seal is. All reality is stamped with a certain quality. And part of what we'll be doing over the week is exploring what is meant by that quality. All reality is stamped, imprinted with mind. There is no thing which isn't imprinted with our mind. This is the big teaching that comes out of this tradition. If we want to take it back even further and trace its lineage, it goes right back to some, a phrase that some of you might be familiar with, which is the opening passage out of a, probably the most translated text in Pali Buddhism, known as the Dhammapada, in the footsteps of Dhamma. The opening phrase of that text is, mind is the forerunner of all things. So there is no reality which isn't imprinted with our mind. There is no thing which exists independently of our perceptions of them. So, to begin at the beginning. The whole history of Buddhism, including the Mahamudra tradition, is a history of mind transformation. That's what marks it off 
from many, many other spiritual traditions. It doesn't speak of you know of God or not God. But it, what it does speak about, from Pali Buddhism into the esoteric teachings of Tibetan Buddhism, through all of the vast Mahayana practices that you find in Japan and China, is it talks about mind transformation. So all of the practices within Mahamudra are exactly within the traditions of Buddhism which are seeking to transform the mind. To see things as they are. This is the statement that we find repeated again and again, no matter what tradition it is. And I really would want over this week to place the Mahamudra tradition, which is Tibetan in its practice certainly now, because Indian Buddhism hasn't died out, to place it within the great project of Buddhism, which is the project to transform one's mind and to see things as they are. It doesn't talk about you know, reaching other places. It talks about transforming the place where we are. That place where we are is, well, to almost quote a philosopher actually, is either a happy place or a sad place. And it's often just a mixture of both. The world as we perceive it, mostly in our ordinary, average, everyday experience, is a mind, uh, is an experience which is implanted with what in Buddhism we term dukkha. I often say to my students, this is a virtually untranslatable word. You translate it as suffering. Now that's one end of the spectrum. Suffering is the strong end of the spectrum, or the one that we recognise. The pain and misery, both mental and physical, that we see around us, enacted in the world. But at the other end of the spectrum, it's something far more mundane. Something far more mundane. It's, for example, not getting the chocolate in the box that you wanted. <laughs> it's sitting in a place where you don't want to be. Being with somebody you don't want to be with. So it's from the minutiae of our experience, just our ordinary, everyday experience, which we find irritating through the great pains and sufferings, the bereavements and the loss that we often experience in our lives, particularly as we start to get older. But it's the great experience of pain that we see in the world around us. So, I had this described once to me by a tutor from Dalai Lama, who's now long since dead. And um, he said, you know, the trouble with Westerners, when they start to think about dukkha, when they start to think about this thing that we normally translate as suffering, they tend to think of it as something like a sharp stab in the back, like being stabbed or something. He said, imagine this, rubbing your arm slowly against the brick wall. It's very vivid, isn't it? <laughs> it evokes a lot, just in that phrase. Rubbing your arm slowly against the brick wall doesn't start off very painful. It's repetitive and it ends up with being extremely painful. One thing I'm quite fond of saying these days, almost jokingly, is that we have a great propensity of causing ourselves misery. In fact, we're addicted to it. We do it again and again and again and again. Um, I have a term for this in Buddhism. I'm sure those of you who've been on retreats before have heard this term. It's a term called samsara. Usually means something like 
um, the round of death, birth and rebirth. It's actually derived from the root. And I don't want to go into this over this week giving you many of these, but just sometimes it's just useful the piece of language it's derived from. It's derived from the Sanskrit root, which actually means to go round in circles. Now that's our experience. It's circular. Going round and round and round in circles. And if you've ever had that feeling of deja vu, well, it's probably because you've been doing it again. I don't know about yourself, but myself, I often think, and look back and think, why am I still doing this when I was doing this 15 years ago? <laughs> and it still caused me the pain now that it was causing me 15 years ago. Yet we don't let go of it. Almost better the misery you know than the one you don't. So we repeat. We have this propensity repeat. Now, the title of this week, as it was put down, has the word freedom and spontaneity within it. Or certainly the word freedom. Freedom of mind. Where there is this circular mind, this mind that has the propensity to go round and round and round and round, there is no freedom. There is certainly very little room for spontaneity. In other words, for an unfettered mind. We experience things, we perhaps see them in the way that we are habitually disposed to see them. To be entrapped by that. Now, I always think of the ultimate Pavlov's dogs. Do you remember Pavlov's dogs? You know, you put a piece of meat out and it begins to salivate the dog when, and, and you associate this with ringing a bell so only the dog begins to salivate when you just ring the bell. Now we're in a sense the ultimate Pavlov's dogs because you know, hold something out we like, we want it. Hold out something we dislike and you're pushing it away, you're rejecting it. Trying to get rid of it as quickly as possible. The question that I'll pose and I'll keep posing over the week is Wherein is the freedom in that? If all we're doing is reacting, because that's what we're doing, if that is our habitual disposition to want what we like, to reject what we dislike, and actually this is the whole of Buddhist psychology, by the way, I mean, despite that there's vast tomes written on it. The whole of Buddhist psychology says actually in the samsaric realm, in our realm of ordinary everyday experience, which is characterised by dukkha, by the unsatisfactory states, the irritation, the pain, the anguish and everything else. In that state, we have three dispositions. We like, we dislike, or we neither like nor dislike. That's it. Those are your three conditioned states. Again, wherein is the freedom? In that. Now the transformation of mind that's hinted at by the Mahamudra tradition coming through now through Tibetan Buddhism is to break that, to break the cycle of repetition. We're all, if you like, habituated into just simply repeating. Now there are all kinds of technical words which you can use, but they're just dispositions that we have propensity to behave in the world which we can't let go of. Find very, very difficult to let go of. 
Now, all this sounds may sound terribly miserable and depressing, but the good news is, if you want some good news, and really what we're talking about here is the first of the noble truths that Buddhism or the Buddha spoke about, which is the truth and the origin of well, the first and second of the, the second of the noble truths, the truth and the origin of dukkha. Then actually things start to get better if there is an origin to it. In other words, the cause. Because if you can identify the cause and eradicate that cause, then its effect, which is the dukkha, ceases. So this is about identification of the causes, identification of the habit patterns, allowing to be with what is. Something we find very hard to do a lot of the time. Sometimes easier than with others. With the relax, with the freedom, with the spontaneity, also comes relaxation of mind. Our minds are very tense, hence we are very tense, usually. We are fixated. Again, that disposition, that habit, is a fixation, a way of seeing the world in a particular way. The particular way that the Buddha identifies as being the root of all this, again, forgive me if I'm saying things you already know, but perhaps I can put them in a slightly different way, is a world which is characterized by something called avidya. Now, again, this is subject to an alternate translation. It's usually translated as ignorance. Have you all come across this one? The origin of all of this is ignorance. As if somehow, if I came along and gave you all the right information, everything would be fine. Well, it's not just that. Um, if I translated this properly, it would speak, sound awful, but I'll give you a pen. It would be something like uh, a positive misapprehension of reality that you refuse to change. <laughs> but that's not sure what's in it. Now, I'll put it in a very simple analogy. This is a bit like having a pair of glasses on which have a particular tint to them and you see the world as being pink or blue you know, say the tints are pink and blue somebody says to you, actually the world isn't pink and blue and you refuse to take the glasses off to see it so there's a kind of willfulness to this there's a willful blindness to the holding on so this is a positive misapprehension in other words you're clinging you don't want to release the misapprehension. It's again familiarity. This is the world, your world is pink or blue and you know it is pink or blue. And you're frightened. And fear is a big part of it. You're frightened to let go. To see it the way it is. Part of that misapprehension of reality, part of our day-to-day habitual ways of relating to reality, which isn't in accord with the way it is, is perhaps seeing things in terms of permanent. Now, I'm sure, as many of you have been on retreat, you've heard many teachers sitting in probably this position saying something like, one of the teachings that the Buddha gave is everything is impermanent. What generally happens with that phrase, everything is impermanent, is we all accede to it, we agree to it intellectually. How many of us actually take it on board emotionally? I mean, really heartfelt. That's what I mean by emotionally. 
taking on board that that is the nature of phenomena. I'm sure we all, you know, even if we understand this thing, and the Buddha says all things are impermanent, reiterated again and again and again and again throughout the history of Buddhism, no matter what tradition you study or practice within. might be no tradition. But even the more popular forms of Western Buddhism which are arising still say everything is impermanent. What happens? We break something, we get upset. <laughs> we lose something, we get upset. We get, we get very annoyed a lot of the time. Something gets stolen, something gets lost. And then of course I'm talking about the kind of lower end of the spectrum, but then we have bereavement, grief, sorrow. We certainly get very, very upset when somebody we love dies. Might be an animal, might be another human being, but we get very upset by it. So we've understood this thing intellectually. It's very easy to understand. Somebody comes along and says, everything's impermanent, everything's changing. But it doesn't somehow impact on us in an emotional way. In other words, from a heartfelt approach to reality as being impermanent. So one of the things that we look at in our mudra practice is the impermanent nature of phenomena. Now one of the most impermanent pieces of phenomena you're likely to encounter is your mind. It's always changing. Thoughts come and go if we allow them to. But what happens? Certain thoughts come and we don't allow them to go. <laughs> Certain ways of behaving come and we don't allow them to go. The German language poet uh, Rilke had a wonderful phrase for this. He talked about the habit which moved in and didn't leave. Which I think is very characteristic of a lot of what happens to us. You know, the habits move in and they might be suitable in certain ways, but they never leave us. And we begin to associate those habits with being us. With, you know, if we get extremely upset often, if they're challenged. These dispositions, these ways of behaviour, saying, you know, I don't like peas, that's just the way I am. <laughs> now, I'm not talking about problems of food allergies and things like that, but I'm just talking about the way that we can turn ourselves into some kind of static object. Again, no spontaneity behind that. No freedom within that. So what techniques like Mahamudra, what Buddhist tradition in general where Mahamudra takes its place within is doing is offering us an opportunity to break out from the prison house of our experience. Because that's where we live. We dwell in a circumscribed prison of our own making. Now, this all may sound extremely negative and pejorative, but on the other side of this we can understand why we do it. We, all of us, try our best within life. We all try to maximise happiness for ourselves. 
We don't want to be miserable, we're just not terribly good at finding the opposite. We have a disposition, kind of like a homing pigeon for suffering. <laughs> we just zero in on it, in the worst possible way of doing it. So, the why, the why of that happening is because life throws all, such, all sorts of things at you know, Shakespeare's phrase the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune continuously assail us from the little to the big so we have to find ways of dealing with them ways of dealing with things which might be suitable in one circumstance become no longer suitable in another circumstance because it's now become habitual it's become you know, that habit that moved in and hasn't left. So we have to find a way of breaking the chains which bind us to this repetitive behaviour. And that's what this is all about. The whys and the wherefores and the hows of breaking these chains that keep us bound to cyclical, habitual ways of behaving in the world to open us up to the possibility of freedom to moving into an open space rather than a confined one now the very big word which you'll hear me repeating over the course of this week is a word which is much much misunderstood usually translated as emptiness in Buddhist traditions very important to all of the Mahayana traditions particularly important to Mahamudra tradition. The Sanskrit word is shunyata. <coughs> the lack of intrinsic nature of things, including ourselves. So we'll make a connection here with very early Buddhism. And again, placing Mahamudra within the lineage and growth of these traditions rather than seeing it as something distinctly different from all of these other traditions. The Buddha spoke in the Pali Canon about three marks to Sangsara. Two of them which I've talked about a little bit and we'll be talking about them a lot more over the week. The first is the impermanent nature of phenomena. Because things are impermanent we experience all things within samsara, phenomena within samsara, as being dukkha. In other words, let's put it this way, we do not like change. That's the simple of the matter. Change causes us pain. Now that might be from the simplest thing of losing something to, I don't know, being in a relationship where somebody changes and they're not the same way as they were ten years ago or five years ago, or however long it is. I mean, I always think it's quite, quite uh, almost horrifically funny when people say, you know, you've changed. <laughs> <laughs> they might have been living with each other for ten years or something. <laughs> you know, you go, you didn't notice them. <laughs> now, this again, going back to my opening remarks, is about the imprinting of the mind. You want to see a particular person in a particular way for them to be something for you in that particular way. 
that imprinting, that holding, that fixing doesn't allow them to be at all. In fact, it doesn't even allow you to be in relation. In fact, at worst, one can possibly say there is no relation other than to a mythology, an idea that you carry around in your head about somebody or something. It might even be something that has value for you. So we don't like change. That's the first of two marks. You know. Change causes us pain. Change, impermanence, gives rise to dukkha. The third mark is the more intangible one. A little bit more difficult to see. In the Pali Canon, we're talked about things being anatta, or anatma. I use a Sanskrit word. They lack self. Or actually, specifically, they lack something called atta or atma, which is actually coming from the Hindu tradition, or from the Brahmanical tradition. Usually translated in most of the books you see as not self. I'm going to sort of add a slight corrective to this really, is that in a way the Buddha is not that interested whether there is a self or there isn't a self. What he is interested in is exposing things as process. That the self isn't a solid thing. Now within Indian traditions, and I'll just give you a tiny, tiny background to this, within Indian traditions, Atma has a very specific meaning. It means something which exists not independent on something else. The Atma, which is the real essence of the person, which is indestructible. If something is indestructible, it's partless. It can't exist independent on other things. That is what the Buddha is attacking. He's saying there is no such entity to be found. Everything arises independent on something else. So if there is a process which is called the self is not a thing that can be identified but we can look at the process and how that process arises now that's very important because what in a sense he's saying is the world of phenomena the world we inhabit all lack this thing that we might term essence or self doesn't mean it doesn't exist when I say it lacks an essence of itself, it means it doesn't exist in again in a way I think it exists. So again, it's about opening up our experience to things which are occurring, which are processes, which are impermanent. You're not identifying something which is solid, stable. Now, as I say, we'll look at that in more detail as we go through the week, but it's, it's a little bit more difficult to grasp for most people. But one thing I would say to you, and this is really, really important in terms of the Mahamudra tradition, it's important in Buddhism in general, when you read books which um, almost talk about things, Buddhism in its original languages never talks in nouns. It only ever talks in verbs. 
So nirvana isn't a place, nibbana. You know, the Buddha nibbana. Or in other words, there's nibbanaing going on. <laughs> and when we look at all of these words in their original languages, they are verbs. They're not things, they're processes. Processes themselves arise out of causes and conditions and will continue to arise as long as those causes and conditions exist. So the causes and conditions which sustain and uphold this condition which we call samsara, which we call, which I've called habitual existence, because that's the way it is, it's simply this round cycle of habit which is repeated again and again and again and again. Now we don't have to talk in terms of future lives and rebirths because this is it. These are all future lives and rebirths and we just get reborn again and again and again. Now I talk about born again and again and again Buddhists. And so just going round and round and round, being arising in these states again and again and again. Until we can learn to break that cycle. Until we can learn to discover once again the natural freedom and spontaneity of mind. In other words, the pliability of mind. What we have are rigid minds. Now, that might sound odd, because when we look, when we introspect, our mind's jumping all over the place. But they're usually jumping around within the familiar, the known, rather than opting for areas and you know, almost surprising yourself about where the mind can go. Now, that's not to say it doesn't exist. One of the great facets of all of these traditions is they don't build on things which are not there already. Now, within these traditions, particularly within the Mahamudra tradition, we have this term called Buddha nature. But even with other traditions, such as Theravada, which don't have that actual term, the whole point about the practices is they're built on something which you have already. You don't have to import it from somewhere else. You have it. You glimpse it, but you glimpse it just merely occasionally. So meditation practice, that's the word I'll query again, meditation, a peculiar word. In practice, in sitting practice, in walking practice, one of the things that you might have done in other retreats is something like summertime, concentration, trying to stabilise the mind to gain some calm, some peace. Insight, if you're talking about Vipassana. Now these are not things that we don't have, but we just don't have them very often. We don't have concentration very often. From time to time we glimpse it. I don't know if you, you know, have something you, a favourite pastime perhaps that you engage in. But when you engage in that pastime, might be playing a musical instrument, might even watching a film or something, that you're so with what you're doing, very little thought is going on, and time slips away. Time goes like that. Long periods of time can seem like nothing in that state. Until you finish the task that you're engaged in, and you arrive back into your normal state, and then once again, you lose that concentration, and you're thinking about the past, you're thinking about the future, 
and you're very rarely there in what you're doing. So meditation is building on something that you already have rather than something that you don't have. This natural spontaneity and freedom of the mind within the Mahamudra tradition which I talked about I shall say some more about tomorrow is not something you don't have. That is the nature of mind. Only it's become rigidified, sedimented. We try to create some kind of stasis where none exists. It's full of clutter, too. Very little room to genuinely respond. Now that's the origin of compassion in Buddhism. True responsiveness. And true compassion arises spontaneously. It doesn't arise from the thought, I think I'll go out and be compassionate today. It only arises naturally. Unless it arises naturally, then it's contrived. So we're trying to touch within these meditations that we're doing over this week, we're trying to touch the essence of that nature of mind. The true spontaneity of mind. The true spontaneity of mind which lacks, which actually lacks this kind of intrinsic existence that we might associate. Actually, part of the problem with English language is it's poverty stricken when it comes to talking about mental state. We have one word, mind. Whereas in Sanskrit they have many, many words which talk about all the different functions. So our language almost compels us to see things in a particular way. English language does that. Some of the other European languages do similar things as well. So we don't see the process nature of mind. What we tend to see is as a thing. In fact, many of the models that have been used in cognitive science are changing gradually, I'm glad to say. Used in cognitive science, for example, is comparing it with computers. Information processing. Now, this might be useful in certain ways, but it lacks the, the kind of distinctions that are made within Buddhism about this true nature of mind. This effortless, clear, spontaneous thing. Also, something that's there is that there is no mind without an object. But the mind is not that object. Now, some of you might have heard of this Sanskrit term chitta. It's actually Sanskrit Pali term. Chitta? Have you come across this word? Chitta only arises in dependence on an object. Without an object, there is no chitta. In other words, there is no mind without objects using our words. Yet the mind isn't that object. Now, one of the analogies which is used both within the Mahamudra tradition and within the Dzogchen tradition, the Dzogchen tradition is specific to one group of Tibetan Buddhism, known as Nyingma. And the classic analogy that's used is of the mirror. 
or the sky. The clouds which drift through the sky are not the sky. The objects which are reflected in the mirror are not the mirror. In fact, they don't defile the mirror. No matter what you place in front of it, it doesn't defile the nature of the mirror. The nature of the mirror is simply to reflect. That's all. Whether I put a gross object in front of that mirror, or whether I put a beautiful object in front of that mirror, it won't affect the nature of the mirror. The nature of the mirror will just continue to reflect what's there. That's all. So the mind is compared to something like the mirror, which is not affected by the object. Now this is good news from our point of view, because when all those horrible objects called nasty thoughts drift through your mind, <laughs> they're not the intrinsic nature of your mind at all. All these harsh thoughts you have might have about yourself, the harsh thoughts you might have about others, the feelings that we have, are not intrinsic to the mind's nature at all. They're adventitious. They come and go. Putting in very crude terms, all of our thoughts have a limited shelf life. Only we tend to fix them. We tend to hold on to them. And you can see this with, you know, obviously, the powerful negative emotions like anger. Actually, sometimes the anger could be worse 15 years on than when it originally occurred. Because now it's become kind of a superating wound, which is reinforced by all kinds of other phenomena as well. And it's fixed in time, in a particular way. So all of this is about learning to let go. There's one classic phrase that you know, we can say about this tradition is learning to relax and let go. Now, that's not going to happen by me simply saying it to you. It's actually really exploring and investigating the nature of your mind. So this is about exploration and investigation. And if you like, you are your own laboratory. And it's a fascinating laboratory to be involved in. And I think people on retreats, you know, don't, I don't see why people watch soap operas. You know, because everything's going on in your, in your own mind. All the murderous thoughts, the greed, the hatred, the delusion are all there. <laughs> you don't need to go and watch something else. It's just all going on in different forms. But just to watch that arising, to watch that passing away, without fixating, without holding on, that's what we mean by freedom and spontaneity of mind. Now, also coupled with this, and I'll make these my final words, and you can ask me things or talk about or not talk about, as the case may be, depending on how you feel, is, is touching that natural spontaneity of mind, allowing ourselves the chance to be free. Now, something that's allied to this, and again, it's slightly a challenge, comes within this tradition, although they might not formulate it in exactly this way, do you have the courage to be free? Do you have the courage to let go? Because that's what it takes, a degree of fearlessness. Now, within the classic iconography of Buddhism, one of the classic mudra gestures, mudra, again, a mark, is the Buddha holding up his hand as a gesture of fearlessness about what may arise. 
Now, this can only come from within you. Can't come from outside. Can't come even from going away and hearing lots and lots and lots of teachings. That doesn't change you one iota unless they are practiced. Unless there is that genuine movement and wish to deal with a problem. Now we're almost back at our starting point. Because to sit here, to engage in the sort of practices, is to recognise there is a problem, and that problem is dukkha. That problem, no matter how, and you know, we all experience it differently. You know, some people might experience it through tragedy and grief and big things within their lives. Others might experience it as just minutiae of irritation. You know, that rubbing your arm against the brick wall. In day-to-day life, getting upset, getting angry, getting irritated, all the stuff that goes on, just the ordinary daily-day experience. But there has to be recognition that there is that problem to do anything about it. It's almost like the addict, the alcoholic, has to admit they have a problem before they can begin to change. So there's the admittance or the recognition that something is at odd, odd with our lives. We don't feel at ease. In fact, we feel uncomfortable often strangers in the world slightly oddball from time to time now just one final word um, the big word which we always use in retreats is the big word of meditation I hate to tell you there's no such word in Buddhist languages for such a thing that's derived from 19th century Christianity this word the word that's used is Bahavana it means to bring something into being. It means to actually cultivate. Actually, the word I prefer personally is cultivation. Is to cultivate wholesome states of mind. So when we talk about metta, loving kindness, we talk about metta bahavana, vipassana bahavana. It's actually bringing insight, bringing loving-kindness into being. Not just sitting there as we often, I mean, particularly in, Western world, in the Western world, we tend to sort of say, when we're usually putting something off, I'll go away and meditate on it. <laughs> but generally it means I'm not going to do anything about it, I'll think about it as a nice idea. <laughs> Specifically within the Christian traditions, it meant to take a piece of scripture and contemplate it. Within Buddhism, this word Bahavana, which is the one that's being translated for meditation, means to actualize, to bring into being. And we're doing practices here to actualize the freedom and spontaneity of mind, not to think about it as a nice idea. That's the big word. Sangsara is conditioned existence. Nibbana the big goal that's held out in most of the Buddhist traditions, or certainly within the Theravada traditions, Nirvana, is the unconditioned. It's the letting go of the conditions which make samsara, cyclical, habitual life, come into being. Perhaps I should stop there. <laughs> Right at the beginning of your talk, 
it's exactly that that's going on, this breaking down of things so that you see that they don't have real existence. Now I mean that in a, in a sort of kind of ultimate sense. I don't mean that, that, that it's not really happening to you. But it lacks real existence. In other words, real existence would be something which possessed an intrinsic nature. So that mood doesn't possess an intrinsic nature at all. Because it's composed of many, 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 many moments that make it up. Once you begin to see that, and again, that's not just a head thing, because I presume most of you are following this intellectually, but it becomes a heart thing. I mean, this is actually interesting, this word chitta, which I've used, actually means, we identified it with being mind, but also within the Sanskrit Pali term, it also means heart, too. Um, in, a, in a really sort of emotional connected sense. And in certain Buddhism in particular, um, they talk about body, which they usually identify with as being crown of the head, speech which is obvious because it's the throat, and mind, which is here. So once we begin to understand it that way, through real seeing, not just understanding it intellectually, then it starts to destroy the hold that these things have over you. I don't know answers the question, but... <laughs> I've been trying to understand that as uh, it is within the context. It seems to affect in a way universally all can it be so that there is a process and so on. usually lasts about two years. Mm-hmm. Can that two be broken? The quick answer will be yes. But that doesn't mean it's an easy process. Because we're dealing, we're dealing with some of the most habitual tendencies of the mind here, the most deep-seated tendencies of the mind to react to things in particular ways. When you say reacting to death with anger about it, might be absolute grief. Now, one thing I might get clear here is that, you know, for example, Buddhism, and certainly this form of Buddhism, isn't against grief. It doesn't say if somebody dies, you don't grieve. What it says is, you don't grieve and then hold on to it forever. You learn to let it go. Same with the anger. Your your initial moment might be anger. But you learn to let it go. Let it relax to it again. Now, from my own experience, just living in Tibetan communities, Tibetans are not unemotional people. When somebody dies, they get upset. And they grieve and they get angry and they do all the sorts of things that you and I do. But what I have noticed, and I don't want to idealise this, in some instances I've noticed that process is overcome a lot quicker. Now, whether that's because of 1300 years of of Buddhist culture, might be, or it might be just the way Tibetans react to that. I wouldn't, again, I don't want to idealise it. But I do see a way of overcoming, which overcomes the process a lot quicker. Let go of it. In other words, that's the big word, the letting go. 
There's nothing wrong with the state. <laughs> you know, because remember, those states, as I was saying earlier on, are not the nature of the mind. It's only when we think they are and hold on to it that the problems really start. So it's, it's letting go. It's, it's again the word, the key word behind them. part of it, I mean I wouldn't get wouldn't, you know, these are complex states to which I don't want to give glib answers because they're not easy at all I mean what we're talking about in, in terms and Freud has a very good, a good word for it he talks about the return of the repressed and that's often what's happening is we think we've got over them but actually we haven't because what we've done is repress it um, and as you know I mean, one of the common words in western languages now come in from Freudian psychology is the unconscious. You know, the fact that the repressed is part of the unconscious. Um, but like all good repressed, you can't keep it down. It just keeps popping up every so often. Now, if I was contrasting that kind of idea with Buddhist psychology, philosophy, and the sort of practices we're engaged in this week, is that we might talk about things being unconscious, but they're not intrinsically unconscious. It doesn't mean we can't raise them to consciousness. So if we can recognise fully and raise it, because every time that repress comes back, you have a record, you have an opportunity. Now that's a different way of looking at it. Instead of saying, "Oh, this miserable thing's come to inflict itself upon me again," it's kind of I've got the opportunity to really get into this now, to really open it up. In other words, to make it fully conscious. Now I'm, I hate to keep giving you these words, but that word titter again is to make conscious, is to raise to consciousness, and that's also to raise to the heart level, to really understand, to comprehend, comprehend it at a heartfelt level too. And only when that occurs can it be let go. So yes, yeah, they will come back to these things, um, but rather than seeing that as negative, because it can be, because it can be overwhelming again, when you think you've dealt with something, to, to try and click into a better mental frame which says this is an opportunity now to, to really deal with it. But again, I wouldn't want to give quick good answers to those. They're very complex questions. Hi, I'm just about to see you. <laughs> I can hear you. <laughs> Yep. Oh, I understand. Well, yeah. But this is the one thing that's determined, or it's not a thing, but 
just the consciousness the awareness, the mirror, you know, the water, the I don't know, other traditions speak about the beloved. I mean, that the clarity, I think we're the name that's there before we're born and after we die. I mean, that's. Mm. Mm, no? I mean, again, I'd, I'd be very wary, of, I mean, I can talk about this specifically within this tradition, but I'd be very wary of generalizing it in terms of all forms of Buddhism, because I have different answers to this. In this form, if you like, the permanent impermanent is the flexible, spontaneous nature of mind. That's simply because, remember, it's not a thing. And it's only whatever appears to it. That's all. But it's still not even the nature. It's not you know, the, the thing and what, that appears and the consciousness which arises are of not the same taste, is the word that's used, or the phrase that's used. So it's, it's fluctuating. It's changing. Now, if we talk about Buddha nature, there are many different views of Buddha nature as well. I mean, some traditions, for example, the Gelukpa tradition, sees Buddha nature as a seed which has to be cultivated. So dependent on the conditions, just like you're growing a plant, if you give it the right conditions, the right opportunities, water it regularly, feed it, it'll grow. That's one version of Buddha nature. The other version of Buddha nature is the one that you find within some of these traditions, Mahamudra, but particularly in the Dzogchen tradition, is that you are a Buddha, only you don't know it. In other words, you're kind of obscured. Your real Buddha-ness is uh, not shining through because it's got so many layers of dirt on it. Um, And if only we can get rid of that and reveal the true nature, then you will be the Buddha or a Buddha. So there are many, many different ways, many different ways of approaching this within different traditions. If I was going to say there's a a joining point between this all, between them all, is heading towards this freedom of mind within it, this this ability to really respond. Now I think that's within Theravada Buddhism, it's within the Mahayana traditions, the Indian Mahayana traditions, and it's within all the Zen and Mahamudra traditions and everything else. It's tapping into that natural wave of responding to things, to really respond to them. That's, if you like, um, our responsibility. <laughs> it's to learn to respond in a, in a genuine way. That's what we hear in the stories within Buddhist traditions of the Buddhas and the Bodhisattvas and the way they respond to a situation as that situation demands. Not to come from a kind of way of looking at it says, I think I ought to respond in this particular way, which is no response at all, but to act, to act spontaneously, to act freely, as the situation demands. That's, I think, the, the um, commonality between all those traditions. But that's because it's, 
Well, that's that's in the hmm, that's in the letting the things arise naturally. In other words, and using uh, really ordinary language, taking out the sensor to allow things to genuinely arise. Now we'll be doing some practices around this. Um, I'll be trying to hold out these promissory notes at this stage until we start the proper retreat properly tomorrow. Um, trying to remove the sensor out of our experiences so that when you are genuinely observing the nature of the mind you observe whatever arises within it. Now, that's not to evoke those or prod them into coming into being if they're not naturally going to come into being and it's not to repress them either but it's just to allow whatever is to arise. Now that's not what normally happens. In our normal experience, even, you know, some of the things we have labelled as difficult, they get through because we, in some senses, know we can handle them. And we sort them out, um, and there's still censorship going on. The really deep-seated problems often don't, we simply do not allow them to arise. The blockages are too deep. within us. So it's, all I can say is promissory notes here we're working on that sensor you know allowing it to be trying not to label trying not to um, automatically as soon as we start putting the judgments in of good thought bad thought everything else then we start to siphon out our experience now within Mahamudra is the attempt to see the natural flow of mind with whatever is arising. And that's ultimately the way of dealing with it. Because, you know, if it's really, really had a big problem, we might want to call it, arises, but it's also allowing it to go. <laughs> you know, problems are problems usually because we fixate them. Rather than letting it arise, having a good look, saying hello, like a guest coming into the house and you don't want it to move in forever. <laughs> um, you allow it to rise in the mind, but you also allow it to go on its way. That's the problem we have. That's when it becomes the problem, is when we don't allow it to go on its own way. <coughs> Having fully acknowledged what's going on. But that's the sort of stuff we'll be working on. There are practices which build up to that process. Don't you think that there's good reasons for reflection or something like that if there's a, a memory or something that is so bad that you can't handle it at the time? Sometimes. It's always good to sort of open up and... Yes, I do. This is why the exercise, the practice is graded. You build up to that sort of thing. You don't just allow it to happen. You don't, in other words, allow yourself to be overwhelmed because it could be overwhelming if everything arose. I mean, it could just be devastating. Um, so, yeah, also um, it's acknowledging that the mind 
has an innate wisdom, and I don't mean that in terms of inherently existing wisdom. There's a kind of innateness which allows things to arise at the right time. So we're not heading towards kind of um, overkill, where everything comes up at once. But where it's staged, where we begin to have the tools to be able to deal with it when it does arise, when the really deep problems start to arise. That's what we're training ourselves in, having the skills to be able to deal with those things. Without it, um, we're into bigger problems. (laughs) So initially it's the skills that we're getting. So like all of the Buddhist meditation tradition, it starts off with really basic things. Observing the breath, visualising, being able to hold objects. And once you start to begin to get a real feel for that, then you can start to do these other, you know, much more potentially, potentially difficult things. But only once you start to build up that, you know, that firm base. So over the week, we'll be starting with really basic things and building up over the week. So, yes, I mean, the answer to your question, you don't allow you know, things to automatically overwhelm you. It's not going to sit here, you know, just let everything happen. <laughs> Not good news. again connects with, with Freud to a certain extent because what he says is certain thoughts set up neural pathways. In other words, they affect the brain. Um, they set up patterns in the brain, uh, connections. What we are doing here is really deeply deprogramming ourselves. So, I mean, I can only again hold this out as, as, as a something that can happen, I don't think will happen, is that if we keep recognising and keep recognising and keep recognising the problems, but also developing wholesome states of mind. Because it's not just about deprogramming. I mean, the Buddha talks about, for example, um, eradicating unwholesome states of mind, a kusala state. But he also talks about developing kusala states developing wholesome states of mind here. So what moves into your um, cellular memory is wholesome states of being which change the cellular memory. So in other words, they become replaced by more wholesome ways of responding and behaving. So if I take the, the classic formulation of, well, actually our cellular memories, our neural pathways are embedded in greed, hatred and delusion. A Buddha hasn't got a blank mind, but is somebody who acts from wisdom and generosity and kindness and compassion. So in other words, that programming 
has changed. You now have somebody who acts spontaneously out of wholesome states of mind. In other words, they pervade his being, or her being. So, you know, obviously it takes a long time. Um, we're talking about Buddhas here, and uh, awakened ones. So, initially it's, you know, it's, it's getting, you know, it's, it's seeing, recognizing, letting go, but it's also developing wholesome states, wholesome patterns of response. Whereas we've normally been responding through as unwholesome, pre-programmed, habitual states. Yep, I can just about see you. <laughs> I like the word sensitivity a lot because this is a lot of what we're doing in um, these practices is actually developing our sensitivity developing our sensitivity towards what's happening developing our responsibility our ability to respond in all those kind of situations that life throws at us which means sensitizing ourselves you talk about effort as well it doesn't seem to take out any you know, effort or what I would say is when we when we look at the Buddha's path, I mean the Buddha within the Eightfold, you know, noble, noble Eightfold Path talks about right effort. Not too much, not too little, but just the right effort. In other words, that's the effort that appears effortless. So that doesn't sound too paradoxical. Because it's it's what's needed at that time. That, in a sense, arises again naturally. And we'll be doing some exercises which is about effort within some of the things that we'll be doing. But it arises naturally. When we're conscious of making effort, when we're really conscious of it, we're generally putting in too much. Yeah, can be. That's right. Yeah, I mean, what can happen? Again, all I can say is <laughs> watch what we're going to do over the over the week. But I mean, one particular thing is one you you find when you're observing, 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 the mind actually becomes quite tense. So you have to counterbalance that by learning to let go a bit. And then when you find you learning to let go, 
that things are getting too tangled up and you're kind of slothful and falling asleep and all the rest of it, then you apply effort again. Now, the students have a wonderful word for this, and I'm, I'm kind of preempting myself for what we're going to do during the week. They call it taking the mind as a spinning a thread. Now, it's a lovely analogy, isn't it? Because you know, if you have a, a thread and you're, you're trying to spin a piece of wool, if you apply too much effort to it, in other words, you have the thread too tense, it snaps. If you have it too loose, it gets tangled up. Only when the right effort, in other words, when the right balance occurs, does it spin properly. And do we have a nice piece of thread at the end of it? And that's the sort of analogy that they use in Mahamudra practices, taking the mind as a spinning a thread. So that we learn to find the right balance, the correct effort involved. Now, we do that initially by taking the two extremes, applying too much effort and applying too little. And then, for our own selves, finding the middle between the two. And that's the development of sensitivity, the word you're using. Sensitivity towards what's occurring. He's disappearing into the gloom at a rapid rate. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, the word for ignorance. Yeah. Oh, I didn't. Yeah, the word is actually avidya in in Pali, and avidya in Sanskrit. That's the word that's usually translated as ignorance. What I was trying to say about that was really that it's too simplistic a translation. We can. Good time. I'm say people. <laughs> <laughs> It's too simplistic a translation because it, you know, it gives us a picture of what the path is about. It gives us a picture as if you know, we actually have to go away and learn about this from books. Um, because normally our word ignorance in English tends to mean want of knowledge. But it's not simply want of knowledge because it's this actual thing of refusing to see things as they are. You know, refusing to take the glasses off in the, the analogy I gave you. So it's this positive, willful misconception about the way things are. You talked about three aspects of samsara. Yep. The first was impermanence. Yep. The third is non-self. Yep. Can you capture these on the second? Well, dukkha, which is pain, suffering, misery, anguish, unsatisfactoriness. Right. Right. <laughs> to use a, a catalogue of terms, it's usually the word that just gets translated as suffering. Uh, probably a more correct translation is something like the totality of unsatisfactory experience. Yeah. But that's a bit of a mouthful to say, isn't it? <laughs> mm-hmm. Just one, one last question. Um, sorry, sure. Um, Um, there isn't um, 
Well, let me get this as straight as I can. I'm not saying there is nothing out there. <laughs> there is something out there, obviously. But what we see, the way that we react, depends on the state of our mind to it. So, in other words, let's take it at the most basic level. This world could be a world of dukkha, which it is for most of us. In other words, it's tinged with unsatisfactory experience, I'm frustrated, I'm angry, and I'm annoyed, and I might be even really badly suffering at some point in time as well. But also this world could be, and this is the classic, this is the opposite word in its original language, it could be sukkah, which is blissful, happy. Now, this isn't to, again, get idealistic about it, because there's a wonderful story in, the, in, in part of the Pali Canon called the Sangyas Nikaya, where the Buddha is walking along the road, and somebody throws a boulder at him, and he, he doesn't get on with <laughs> to put it in my intent, and it shatters a rock and causes a splinter to come off this rock, and the Buddha steps on the splinter. Now, I'm only paraphrasing, but it says within, basically within this, that the Buddha has, this causes the Buddha immense pain, but no dukkha. Now, I think that's extremely important, because, in other words, there is something going on, which is called pain, and it doesn't, you know, Buddha's, you know, the classic thing is the Buddha eats something, probably gets food poisoning and dies from it. <laughs> so that's not to say that death doesn't occur and pain and all the sort of physical illnesses but the mental attitude we take up towards it can either be dukkha or it might possibly even be sukkha happy, content even despite the fact there is pain going on That's partly it. I mean, I mean, let's take that talk about one of those three marks again, which is which is really the way things are. This is the way things are. Impermanent is the way the world is. Now I can, as you know, my normal reactivity towards that is to get upset about it, no matter how, as I said, how much I understand that intellectually. I could get upset when you lose things and do all the rest of the stuff. But, yeah, in other words, when the parents comes knocking on the door, I'm found wanting uh, emotionally towards it. Now, living in true accord with, with that you know, way the world is, is to not respond to it in that way. Not to get angry, not to get annoyed but to see it as part of the wolf and warp of the world. Um, I mean, the great, I'm getting off Tibetan stuff here, but I mean, the great Japanese um, meditator, thinker, somebody called Dogen, who lived in the 13th century in Japan, he said that's what awakening was, was living impermanent. 
That's what enlightenment was, if you want to use that word that we usually use. Nothing other is learning to live with impermanence. So there is, in other words, a reality to which the mind takes a stance to it. And we can't help but do that, can we? Now, most of the mental stances that we take are fairly negative and cause us pain. But there is a way of approaching things where pain isn't inflicted or in the unsatisfactoriness doesn't arise in the same way. So there is a thing, which is the way things are, to which we can either act through dukkha or sukkha. We can either be awakened or we can be fast asleep to it. And that's interesting because the word Buddha itself is derived from a, a, a word bodhi, which means to wake up. What we talk about as being enlightenment just means actually waking up <coughs> to the way things are. And I'm probably all going to send you to sleep by now, so I'll keep on talking. <laughs> um, but it's waking up to the way things are. That's, what quali- that's the quality the Buddha has. He wakes up to the way things are and he deals with the, the way they are. And in that is sukkha in dealing with the way things are. To not deal with them in their, if you like, in their existentiality, in the way that they are, is to cause ourselves sukkha. And that's the most obvious one, it is impermanent. Because that's the one that inflicts itself upon us again and again and again. From those little things that I mentioned, like losing something, to the big grief, to the, you know, the bereavement and loss that we experience in life. I really shouldn't go on, but just one more. <laughs> well, it's just that, would an example of seeing things the way they are, or, or, or working with things the way that they are, if you, um, or if you, you study terms, mm-hmm. it, it simply pays. Whereas mm. if you're not working with the way things are, it, it pays as well as Everything's gone wrong today. You know, sort of, you, you compound it that's so right. that um, it becomes suffering rather yeah. than just pain. That's right. Yeah, that's exactly what's going on. It's, it's a bit like what I call toothache syndrome. <laughs> you know, the way you keep probing the tooth and keep poking it and intensifying it and magnifying it with your mind because you can think of nothing else other than that ache that you've got in your mouth. And that's what's going on in most of these situations. We're, we're putting everything under a magnifying glass. So there's an awful lot of other mental phenomena occurring at the same time, which magnifies it. Yeah. Okay, perhaps we should finish there. Um, just to finish off the evening, perhaps we'll just sit quietly for ten minutes and we'll start the proper retreat tomorrow. Now this session normally will be discussion, me talking, and we'll finish each night on a... On a on a sitting um, rather than a talking. <laughs> okay, just for tonight, I just roll with whatever your normal practice is, might be following the breath. If you haven't got a practice, just follow.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.